0: Hi everyone, it's Guillaume from Startup Basecamp. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. During the show, you will have the opportunity to meet the best climate tech founders, investors, and experts from both Silicon Valley and around the globe. They will share with you their stories and personal journeys into this growing and exciting industry, giving you some insight into the ecosystems that help you to take part in the fight against climate change and benefit from the opportunities it can represent podcast is divided in two small interviews. So in the first part, you will get to know our speakers, their perspectives on the climate crisis and how climate tech is changing the game. Second part of the discussion will be for members of our community who will learn the speakers' secret sauce on how to and share with you their unique expertise on topics such as fundraising, management, strategy and so on to help you to become a better leader in your field. So before we start, I would like to quickly share what we are doing at Startup Basecamp to support climate tech founders in accessing resources and gaining visibility with investors they seek. Our initiatives include a membership based community platform offering access to a dedicated Slack group with a growing number of founders, experts and investors from around the world. And a series of exclusive content such as interviews weekly job listings events and our quarterly online pitch of night opportunity but more than a place where you can learn exchange and grow we are building a matchmaking service to facilitate connections between our members and top investors and experts in the field and soon alongside with other top investors we will be launching a small fund to co-invest In the growth and acceleration of our members. Finally, all of this is possible because of your support and donations. We are a small self-funded team and we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. So please share one episode with a friend and subscribe to the channels. As an added bonus, we will plant a tree for each of our subscribers each time we reach 1000 new fans or donors. Do not hesitate to connect with me via social media or email Guillaume at Startup Basecamp. Thanks a lot for listening, I hope to get in touch with you soon. And now, let's go for the show! Hi everyone, during this new episode of Founder Series, we are sitting down with Lizzy Horovitz, founder and CEO of Finch. Finch was designed to decode products' environmental impact and incentivize consumers to make better purchasing decisions. To do this, they rate products based on their environmental impact on a scope of 1 to 10 and inform people of which product they should be looking for and which one they should avoid. I was excited to speak with Lizzie, who since the age of 16 has been in love with climate mitigation and even spent her sophomore year of high school living in an off-the-grid community in the Bahamas, having worked for both inspiring nonprofits In a multinational consumer goods company, Lizzie saw the urgent need for people to have better access to tools that let them make the right choices and that would ultimately allow companies to be more proactive in their approach towards climate change. After completing her MBA and a Masters in Environmental Management from Yale, Lizzie went on to become the COO for a smart reusable takeaway container company based in Singapore. Where she developed a love for entrepreneurship that was crucial to the journey and development of Finch. In this episode we will learn more about the main players and needs in the sustainable product landscape today, the importance of function and quality and the role Gen Z are playing in demanding more ethical products. Together we will cover the initial challenges of building Finch, the current certification mechanism for rating cleaner products, and the rise and danger of greenwashing. We will also go deeper into the Finch browser extension, how they select and review their product and the business case for why sustainability makes sense. Finally, Lizzie will share why they don't believe in using carbon offsets for consumer product and how the community can help them. During the second part of the talk, Lizzie will give a secret source for early stage founders looking to fundraise by relating her own fundraising journey with Finch. Finally, she will share how she has managed to maintain a good work-life balance as an entrepreneur and some of the podcasts she has learned from. Lizzie, welcome to the show. Hi Lizzie, welcome to the tech for climate podcast. I am super excited to have you uh, here today. Again, an incredible woman uh, taking the fight against uh, climate change. So. I believe today is gonna be a great opportunity to hear your story uh, and learn more about what you guys are up to with uh, Finch. So, Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here.
0: So before we start, that's always the, the, the first challenging question. Can you give us a 30 second introduction about Finch?
1: Absolutely. So Finch was designed to decode products' environmental impacts and incentivize consumers to make better purchasing decisions. So we rate products based on their environmental impacts on a score of 1 to 10 and then tell people what they should be looking for when they're buying these products and what what products are better than others.
0: So before we dive into it, uh, let's start from the top. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about your personal story and background? What are you passionate about? What do you do or love to do besides building a Finch? What makes you feel inspired or like your best self? As I always ask, like, who is Lizzie?
1: Great question. So I fell in love with climate change uh, mitigation when I was 16. And so at this point, it's been over half my life, really passionate about our natural environment and alternatives to fossil fuels or anything that is detrimental to, to climate change progress. And so that's been something that I've been passionate about forever. I think it stems from a love for wildlife and for animals my i get that from my mom who's a huge bleeding heart for for animals and so at least in the beginning most of what i did and the decisions that i made were around how do we save these creatures um and then interestingly it you know that evolved into um into caring about people a little bit more but i love I love being outside. I love walking. I'm a big walker. That's my main form of exercise. I feel like an 80 year old woman, but it's true. Um, I love to ski. I just moved to Denver about eight months ago and have been in the mountains quite a bit this summer, this winter, excuse me. So that's one of my favorite things to do. Um, I'm also, what really gets me excited, honestly, is um, singing and music. I really, really love all types of music from Motown to Broadway to anything. And so you'll always find me listening to music when I'm not working.
0: So maybe we can do something crazy. Can you sing a, a little song for us? Or like a seconds
1: <laughs> I don't know about that, but I did do a um I have a music video out that if if you really want to know, you can probably search it on YouTube. I did a cover of I Wanna Dance with Somebody by Whitney Houston and um yeah, there's a music video out there for,
0: for it. Fantastic. I will definitely go and check it out after the interview. So tell us a bit more about your different you know, work and, and life experience prior to the, the launch of finish. I mean, what did you learn along that, uh, that journey that in a way you would have not if you had a different journey? And I mean, that I guess uh, gave you an edge to, to, start, a, to start a company.
1: So I think what's really interesting about my journey is that I never thought about starting my own company. Um, I never really thought about being an entrepreneur in any way. Um, I like to think of starting a company like getting a tattoo, which is if you have a really great idea and you you want something permanently on your body, you should go for it. But I think it's weird when people say, I really want a tattoo, but I don't know what I want to get it up. It's like, well, why would you want that? And, And so honestly for, the first decade of my career, there was nothing that really spoke to me. And I always thought that I could make a bigger change from being within a large company. And so after college, I went to go work for a nonprofit, um, which was probably the most, aside from Finch, it was absolutely the best work experience I ever had. I was working with brilliant minds. It was a really fun work environment. Everybody was passionate, but I got to a point where I realized these people were suing companies and suing the government for doing bad things when wouldn't it make more sense if you could be within those companies making decisions from the beginning and being more proactive as opposed to reactive so that took me to business school um, where I got my MBA and my master's in environmental management from Yale and really focused on what these large companies can do to reduce their footprint um, when I so so then really the dream job was to work at Unilever I was so inspired by Paul Pullman's um you know, history at Unilever and the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan, that I really wanted to be a part of that. Um, And what was interesting is that I, you know, I reached, I was 27, 28, and I reached what I thought had been my dream job since I was 16. And for a variety of reasons, it just wasn't. I did not enjoy my time there. I thought it was incredibly hierarchical. It was um, really bureaucratic, just tough to move things through. And I think When you're working in a massive company like that, I learned so much and I, you know, to to answer your question in a quick way, there's no way I would be where I am had I not had those three years of work experience at Unilever and understanding how difficult it is for these large companies to make these decisions. Um, But I think oftentimes when you're at a company of hundred thousand people, you can get lost. And if you don't have a good mentor or someone who's really um, looking out for you internally, it's really, really difficult to get by. And that's that's what happened to me, I think through no fault of my own or Unilever's, it was just kind of bad luck. And so two things happened simultaneously at that time. The first was I started looking for other opportunities and I sort of, you know, with a blank slate was like, I thought this was my dream job, this didn't work out. So now I'm open to anything out there. And secondly, what was going on was, um, it was 2016 and Donald Trump had just been elected president. and um, people were getting nervous that the government was did not have their best interests from an environmental standpoint. And so friends and family were coming to me saying, what can I do? How can I play a part in in climate change? And I didn't know where to point them. I, I was like, you know, looking at these wonky academic papers on one side and then on the other, these blogs that are saying things like eco friendly and all natural and not based on any type of data. And there was really no resource in the middle that was based in data, but also fun and accessible to read. And so, at the around the same time, I started this newsletter just for fun. It's called the Green Lizard, um, that basically aimed to distill environmental, you know, complicated issues for normal people. And also, um, a friend's brother invited me to come work with him on this really exciting company um, in Asia. And so. I went to Southeast Asia and I became chief operating officer of a company called Muse, which basically helps uh, display single-use plastic in the to-go industry. And I completely fell in love with entrepreneurship. I loved taking a company from inception to scale. Um, Brian, who was my boss gave me the autonomy to really run the company in a way that I thought was most made sense. And at some point, I realized, you know, this newsletter, there's a need for this. And I love how I feel when I'm doing this work. And so I decided to make that newsletter a full-time thing, which really be- became what Finch is today.
0: That's exciting. So uh, just by stepping back, and I, and I remember the beginning of the conversation, you mentioned that 2016, was, when you were 16 years old, so it was a kind of like a, a key moment for you in this uh, in this climate journey, if I could, uh, if I could say, do you recall any specific aha moment that uh, you could define as such that really was for you uh, the driver to say, OK, no, uh, really, I want to uh, put myself into it. Or it's really all of the succession of that story that you just uh, mentioned to me.
1: The aha moment was honestly before that story began. I didn't know how long you wanted me to, to speak for. So I left <laughs> that out, in the beginning. but when I was 16, this was 2004. And if you remember back to that time, you know, of course, people were studying climate change and it was known, but not even close to the extent that it is today. And I had the opportunity to live off the grid in a school um, my sophomore year of high school. And I've lived in an in a environment in which, you know, the energy came from solar panels and wind generators. We drove cars that were run on biofuel from the nearby cruise ships. Um, their leftover vegetable oil, all of our, you know, if we if it didn't rain, we weren't allowed to shower. So I think I went 14 days without without taking a shower. And it was the most beautiful place I've ever been. It was in the Bahamas and just absolutely gorgeous. And I remember thinking like, this is a beautiful way to live and why can't more people live like this? Um, and I think what what's so lucky about that experience is that I saw the solution before I fully understood the problem. And I think I would, I would argue 95 to 98% of people that learn about climate change, learn about it in a more negative way. They see wildfires, they see droughts, they see people suffering. um, And it's hard for them to think about it in a positive light. And I from day one really saw it as an opportunity, which I think set me on a path of how can I do this um, in a way that, that, you know, improves the life of the lives of others in a way that I've experienced.
0: So before we start going into details about Finch, uh, we like to zoom out and kind of like understand the overall context that uh, you're navigate- navigating on here. So let's try to get your overview on the so-called like sustainable product landscape today. Uh, what are the challenges and opportunities that you see in the market uh, and maybe who are the, the main players, I mean, meaning the, I guess the, the, the sellers or the, the providers of those, uh, those products and and how is it organized? Is it very centralized or is it like a completely fragmented market? Um, tell us a bit more about your, your view on the, on the market today.
1: Sure. I think it's a really interesting question and, you know, there are a lot of different ways to answer it, but I think generally it's fairly fragmented and that's a good thing because it means that each individual company is sort of taking it it on themselves to figure out what the best solution is. I find that the most sustainable best products are the ones that are filling an additional need aside from sustainability. I don't think what is sustainable and in another sense of the word is promoting something that's lacking in quality or function or something else but makes people feel good that it's sustainable. One of the reasons, again, back to Unilever, that I loved working for that company was because people buy Ben and Jerry's because it's absolutely delicious ice cream, not because they're doing a lot for climate justice, right? People use Dove soap because it works. And I think the more we can get into that um, mindset of let's build these products that people want, but on the side, make them sustainable um, in a way that maybe people don't even know about, I think that is a real goal. And so, um, you know, what I'm seeing now is really exciting innovation within specific companies where um, I think of the shoe industry, honestly, I think of Rothy's. I don't know if those are outside of the United States, but, you know, those are made out of recycled plastic bottles, um, and they look really good and they're they're fashionable. Um, I think of Allbirds um, labeling their climate footprint, but they, you know, they were very cool before they started doing the climate work. And so, um the shoe industry specifically speaks out um helios, i think it's called or helios just can just won, a, won an award in south by southwest making their first like 3d sustainable shoe so even in just that small um you know industry there's so much excitement and companies are learning from one another but also taking it on themselves to, to really innovate um and so i think that's really great one of the problems i think and the barriers to sustainable products is really our need for convenience. It's that people want something on Amazon Prime within 24 hours or less. People want to buy clothing still that they wear once and then can toss. I think it's taking a long time for people to come around to the idea that um, waiting longer for things is often worth it and keeping things for longer um, will pay off. So, you know, spending a, spending $300 $300 on a sweater that you'll have for 10 years that you might be able to give to your daughter um, is probably better than spending a $50 sweater that you'll wear twice before it has holes in it. Um, and so as we move along that road, it will get easier for companies to be more sustainable.
0: So it, when you look at the the, the market in, in general and, and it's kind of difficult because definitely sustainable products are going like almost the entire market of like consumer goods. Uh, so I guess there is innovation. And you mentioned like the, the shoes on one side, that is uh, something happening. But there is also like, uh, you know, bigger brand that probably is not uh, is more taking care of like uh, a cheaper and uh, convenience, uh, you know, product than uh, really putting the extra effort and this green premium in a way that needs to go into the those uh, sustainable product. But to, to, to go back to, to my question here, do you see like what is at first like the, the component and the, the weight of this sustainable product into like if you take a, a general basket uh, of different products, are we talking about like product are sustainable now, maybe for like 10, 20 percent, uh, or maybe more or maybe less? Uh, I don't know. And what is really like um, in a way blocking uh, this uh, sustainable product wave to go mainstream? Do you see any think- blocking point?
1: Will you just repeat the question about the percentages? I wasn't following the 10 to 20% part. So
0: my my initial question was to understand what is the weight in terms of market cap of this sustainable mm-hmm. product? Are we talking about like uh, 10% penetration, 90%? I probably were probably around like 15%, 20% max. Uh, so maybe you have a figures to share there. And uh, my second question was to understand what is really blocking to, in a way, this green product wave uh, to, to go mainstream, uh, to replace this uh, unethical or unsustainable product that uh, we have on our basket today?
1: Absolutely, thank you for clarifying that. I think absolutely the market cap is probably around 10 to 20% right now, but the exciting thing is that that's growing so significantly, mostly due to Gen Z, to be honest. Um, Gen Z cares more, according to Deloitte, They care more about the environment than any other um, than any other sort of issue facing the world right now. And as they are graduating from college and buying things for themselves for the very first time um, or even graduating from high school, um, they're demanding this more than ever before. Um, And so as Gen Z demands it also we're seeing waves in their parents are caring more about it. A lot of Finch's followers are 50 to 70 year olds who are sadly thinking about how they want to leave the world in a better place. Um, And so those two communities are kind of pushing the middle and everybody's demanding this more and more. And so we're seeing really year over year, um, this expanding at a very rapid pace. I think what's important in the sort of sustainable market is that there are kind of two different ways that consumers can play and two different types of products. There's sort of consumer behavior change light and then actual consumer behavior change. And so what we've found in our research that, you know, 50 to 70% of the population are willing to change products um, if it's a similar experience, right? So they're willing to buy toilet paper that's made out of recycled paper if the function and quality is the same, or they're willing to buy a Garnier Fructis shampoo bottle that's made out of plant-based materials or recycled plastic, something like that. And not really in, in the user experience, there's no difference there. What we're excited about is these shifts in real behavior, which are instead of using toilet paper, let's get you a bidet and see how much you minimize your toilet paper use and um, and really your overall footprint. Or um, in shampoo, let's buy a shampoo bar and and change that. And so I think what we're seeing is for that penetration, it's a little bit smaller. It's probably closer to five to 10% at the moment. Um, but Finch is really marketing towards that 50 to 70 percent of the population who um, who wants to make these changes, but are going to do it in in baby steps.
0: So, in this in this market in itself, I mean, and you will cover later on like how Finch uh, in a way select and uh, certify those uh, those products, but. What is the the certification mechanism uh, in place right now for those products to be labeled as uh, sustainable? Uh, Is there any like rating agency like you can find in the stock market? Um, Or is it something that is uh, still very um, spread out and and, and fragmented and there's no real like uh, uh, authority kind of like Putting together like criteria that makes uh, you know, easier for, for the consumer to understand what is buying or not.
1: You mean just in the general market, right? Not not finches yeah. specifically. Yeah. So I think what's really dangerous that's happening right now is the amount of greenwashing and the amount of words used that really don't mean anything. Um and so there's sort of two different camps of what's happening. There's certifications, which are absolutely fantastic, really good to look at, and actually means something, right? Because it means that they went through some sort of process, they invested in this, um, which is always a good sign and they have something to show for it. So, you know, you cannot say that you are forest, you're, you know, certified by the forest stewardship council without that FSC certification and that really means something. But there's really nothing stopping any other company from from slapping on something that says we're eco-friendly or we are non-toxic or chemical free Which becomes really dangerous because those words don't mean that much um and they're not regulated right and so what's people think that they're doing these good that they're making these good purchases and acting wisely when in reality um they don't know all the details and they're not um, they're just not finding everything and so what I would say is, it's important to focus on those certifications, right? B Corp, FSC, um, climate neutral. There are a lot of really good ones out there, or or there are some great, you know, for specific issues like ecotoxicity. There are amazing websites like EWG or Made Safe that you can go to and see the scores of these products. Um, but the gap is sort of twofold. The first is for smaller companies, they might be. 10 times more sustainable than a brand at Unilever or Procter and Gamble, they just don't have the $1,500 to spend on getting certified. Right. And so for them, it leaves them having a difficult time understanding, like, how do I communicate this and what's actually moving the needle? If, if we're only doing this internally and don't have those certifications, what words can we use? And, what even Finch is struggling with is that there aren't a ton of words that haven't been sort of like ruined by the greenwashing community. Um, And so, and then secondly, yeah, just to add on to that, there are not, it's not like instead of saying eco-friendly say this, it's that, you really have to dig deep. You have to look at the the ingredients label. You have to see where it was manufactured, etc. And that was a huge point of Finch starting too. Is that you know we don't expect people to do that. Unfortunately, like there will always be that five to seven percent of the population who are willing to really do the digging and the research and turn their lives upside down to be more sustainable. But most people don't have more than seven minutes to spend researching any of this online. And so for those people, they can't just rely on those words. They have to really do their homework. Um, and, and we're hoping that, that we can sort of assist them in that.
0: So let's go deeper into uh, into Finch. Uh, what is the story behind it and, and for who is it? I mean, what was the, the initial gap that you uh, identified and you already started to uh, uncover that a little bit uh, prior to the discussion to, to in the interview? I mean, why, in a way, Finch had to exist?
1: It was really my personal experience with people asking me a lot of questions and also people being so misinformed about having the whole story. And I found myself becoming that annoying friend who's like, you know, a friend will come to me and say, you'll be so proud of me. I just bought compostable silver, compostable flatware for my party. And I would have to say, well, that's actually worse than plastic if there's not an industrial composter out there, right? Like that's just going into the landfill and will biodegrade like everything else. It was examples like that where I said it's so, the marketing and um, sort of PR side of the environment is really getting in the way of, or these companies rather, is getting in the way of real progress. And so I wanted to find a really simple solution where people could, I mean, initially, and it's evolved a little bit, I wanted to find a simple solution where people could compare, what's the impact of me going vegan for a week versus flying across the country, right? And how do we really put that into numbers and something that I that I fully understand? And then it evolved into really like if we look at the food industry, which is why Finch isn't in it, there's a lot of really fantastic regulation and labeling happening in that industry, right? Where if you care about buying free range chicken or um, you know, humane safe eggs, there are labels for that, and it's pretty simple to, to navigate in my opinion, if if you just do a little bit of research, um, in the consumer goods space, there there is none. Um, you know, there are those certifications that I mentioned, but otherwise it's like the wild, wild west. And, you know, what I always say is like, I'm not even close to the first person to come up with this idea. This has been tried many, many times before, really, since the 1980s. And the reason we find that we really like strike while the iron is hot is because of this new generation coming in and, and demanding this more. So up until really a year ago, a lot of these companies could get away with these greenwashing words and just sort of do the bare minimum and not have to be transparent. Consumers are now demanding that and companies are... So it's this two-sided market problem where consumers are demanding it and companies want to fill that demand, but they don't know how. And so our really overarching goal is that, yes, we're serving the customers, but we would like to take that information and give it back to brands and say these are the changes you can make to make the, to have the biggest impact and to make the biggest difference um, so that they're equipped with really that business case on being more sustainable.
0: So on the product side, can you walk us through the, the, the customers uh, UX experience of, uh, of Finch? How does it work? Uh, tell us a bit more.
1: Sure, so we, our first product is this browser extension that unfortunately only works on Amazon right now, but hopefully that will change soon. Where essentially you go on amazon.com, you you download the the extension on your desktop. Um, It works on Chrome at the moment. And when you go to Amazon, Finch will show up in the corner. Um, And when you type in a specific product, Finch will show you what that score is out of 10. Um, what we like about it, what we think could be improved. And then if it's not one of the best ones, we offer three or four alternatives in case you're interested in making a better purchasing decision. And it's all within the Amazon ecosystem. And so if you are interested in trying out another product, we give you that opportunity. But we also dig into, here's why this got a lower score and what you really should be looking for when you're buying toilet paper. Because the other problem that we're solving is when you're buying one product, there are all these different factors to pay attention to, right? It's the climate impact. Is it? Is this gonna get stuck in a turtle's nose when it gets thrown away? Is it going to give me cancer? All these different questions. And that part of the market is fragmented where you go to these different places to get the, that individual information. And what Finch has done is just aggregated all of that data into, okay, when you're buying this product, ecotoxicity, and, you know, climate are the most important things to focus on don't worry as much about you know water use or or whatever um and so we're really we're giving the consumer these quick answers but we're also teaching them long term what to focus on
0: so can you tell us a bit more about like the how did you guys put the, the first prototype uh, in place and why choosing uh, amazon and what was the initial challenges that you uh, that you faced and uh how did you overcome them
1: so I think the first prototype was thought out in a couple of different ways. It was how do consumers wanna think about this information? And, and admittedly, we didn't do enough user testing. This is a lot of just our internal team thinking about these things. We've we've come a long way from then, but um, you know how does a consumer think about this? What's the easiest way for them to think about it? And honestly, where can we get the biggest return? Um, you know, initially in the very early days, I think maybe month one or two, I was thinking about having an app that would be a marketplace where you could buy directly from Finch. I think again, when you look at our target user base, it's not that 5% who's willing to download another app and and do something differently. It's people who will go to Amazon regardless. These people, if they don't have an alternative, they will continue to shop on Amazon. So our feeling was, let's make that as good as it possibly can be and we've gotten a lot of pushback that i'm like more than happy to to be open about because you know people say how can you consider yourself sustainable when you're on you know one of the most environmentally detrimental companies and we we truly believe that if we didn't exist people would shop on amazon anyway and so and because we exist it's not like we're going to get i just don't believe in um i don't believe in the strength of us to fight with a behemoth like them to to shift that. And so um and I also frankly I think that Amazon has the power to do real good. And so we'd like to help incentivize that as opposed as opposed to boycotting. Um, so Amazon just made the most sense. And then the plan is to, you know, to go to the Walmarts and the Targets and, and other large retailers of the world. Um, and the browser extension was was a simple decision because we found that Although it's harder for people to download in the first place than an app, people still are a little bit unsure about what a browser extension is. It's incredibly sticky. So once you download it, you then use it all the time. Every single time someone's shopping on Amazon, there's some finch pop-up that comes up as opposed to, it's really easy for for someone to download an app. But first, from speaking from personal experience, I have at least like 20 apps on my phone that, um, that I never use.
0: Right? Makes sense. No, I t- totally understand. It. It's the same. No, I, 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 see. I was like playing around, and Finch was popping up, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. But, and uh, out of those uh, those products that you um, that you have through Finch, I mean, I like to uh, go back a little bit um, and dig a bit deeper in terms of the the selection of those uh, those products. Um, how how does that? I mean, how does it work, and and how do you ensure that? Uh, I mean, the the, the quality if you can tell us a bit more about like this selection that uh, that you have, uh, do you maybe uh, conduct like regular reviews uh, if the product change? Uh, I saw that you guys have like those six, in a way, main criteria which is climate, uh, water, human well-being, ecosystem, waste, and, and raw materials. If you can, you know, tell us a bit more about like all of them, what's the weight, uh, and explain uh, to, to the audience a little bit more about this, uh, you know, rating system that you have.
1: Absolutely. So our rating system is based on um, probably 30 attributes right now. We've identified 90 that go into the sustainability of a product. Everything from, you know, what's the likelihood that this will shed microplastics to what type of child labor is being used, et cetera, et cetera. And we do a lot of digging in the early days to look at a product category overall and figure out what those factors are. And we depend on peer-reviewed articles, NGO reports, academic studies, et cetera, to tell us what that research should be. And then our scientists, Mark, sort of ways all those together to figure out, okay, I'm obviously simplifying, but in shampoo, 20% of the footprint is ingredients and 80% is happening in the packaging or the shipping, so to mm. speak. So once we have that, um, and, and again, I just wanna underline, we eventually will get to a point where all 90 attributes are integrated, but because of both resource constraints on our side and data constraints, meaning like we're reading articles that came out two months ago and we're waiting on articles that will come out in two months, right? And so we will not incorporate something until we feel 100% clear that the science is there, um, which is why, why we're slow. And although we have aspects of you know, waste, water, raw materials, et cetera, in our in our scores, we would never claim to sort of have that perfectly um, perfectly figured out today. It's it's an ongoing process, and um, it will only improve over time. I think um, the interesting part of the scores also is that there's a lot of information online that's publicly available that we can find. Um, you know. Every company has to put what ingredients are are in the in the product, not necessarily the percentages of them, but at least label labeling what ingredients are there. Every product has to say the country of origin or where it was manufactured. There are a lot of small aspects that are actually really valuable to to a company like Finch. Um, I think I was about to say something else, but I just lost my train of thought. I apologize. Um, In terms of scores. I can't think of it. I'm so sorry.
0: No, and, I, and I, you, you mentioned that uh, you rely on external papers and, and, and how extent, I mean, what's the extent of your uh, network of like uh, scientists and, and people really like helping you to uh, nail down the, the, the classification and understanding uh, in a way the scores of all of those uh, product that you have, uh, that you're labeling now?
1: Yes, you just reminded me, thank you so much. Um, what I was going to say earlier, we have a pretty broad network of advisors that we speak to on a regular basis just to sort of honestly gut check at the very least and at the most we'll walk them through our process and and see what sort of advice they have. Um, we have a PhD on staff, Mark, he was my second hire and he received his PhD in Green Chemistry um, for green engineering and then did a postdoc in in climate uh, research. And so he is really well positioned to sort of look at all these attributes um, in a way that, that makes sense. Um, I think, yeah, so, so, so we, we have a, we have a pretty large, uh, large network. The thing that's interesting to note is that we're not claiming to be As accurate as life cycle analysis, right? We are not going on the manufacturing floor of 200,000 brands and asking them um, how their workers are being treated and really doing our due diligence on that micro level. Um, But what we're finding is there's really nothing in between doing a full on LCA that costs $300,000 and takes nine months to accomplish and the greenwashing of oh, this is eco-friendly, right? There's not a lot that's in the middle there. And so what what Finch is finding is that we're providing a score that is completely rigorous in terms of the research that we're doing and what we know, what we can find out and what we know about the product um, without spending a significant amount of money and something that we can do at scale. Um, And so I think we're really filling that gap that is in the middle. And, you know, at some point down the line, maybe we'll have our own, LCA arm of the company or consulting arm, you know, opportunities are endless, but I think that for right now, the accuracy is is good enough without, you know, doing something that's not scalable. Mm-hmm.
0: Makes sense. And how many products do you have, uh, I mean, in, in your database right now and how long does it take to, to you know, add new products? What's, uh, I mean, uh, what is the, the, the scale of the magnitude that you, you think you can reach uh, within 12 months from now?
1: So our process is 10% manual, 90% automated. And so that 10% manual is what I've just mentioned in terms of yeah. looking at a category overall and saying, okay, how do we weight these? And so that is the bulk of the work where it takes us you know, at least a week or two to understand in that new category um, what the process is. And so we have 85 of those right now. We have rated, um, I think 250,000 products at this point in time, all all within the Amazon ecosystem which seems like a lot, but when you think of Amazon, it's actually, we have a long way to go. Um, and it's not, because of our machine learning sort of neural network system, it's not a lift to add one more product. We basically just scrape the internet for anything we can find and anything that is available um, will show up and will be will be scored. So the beauty of that is as new products come to market, as to your point earlier, as they change their... Um, their makeup or their ingredients, the scores will all change dynamically. We don't have to go back to the drawing board and do that initial manual research. Um, And the way that we do everything is it's all normalized. And so every product category will have scores between a two and a 9.5, 9.7. We'll never have a score of a 10 because any physical product is is doing some damage at least. Um, And so, you know, if there's an industry that like really needs to be disrupted, and there's a new product that comes out that becomes the best of the best, that will become a nine point seven, and the highest score earlier will just drop down a little bit.
0: So, what are the, the current and expected economics of uh, of Finch? I mean, if you can tell us a bit more about like the, the business model, maybe the your your margin, future projection. Uh, tell us a bit more, like uh, as as an investor. The, why should I put my money on?
1: Absolutely. we So we are an interesting business because we are serving the end consumer, but the end consumer is not paying. Um, we are a B2B company. And we sell our data in two different ways. The first is having almost nothing to do with the extension. We are selling an integration into other retail platforms. So if Amazon eventually did want to um give the user the ability to sort by price and by sustainability that could be powered by Finch in the background. And we will sell our scores directly to those companies so that they can integrate it. um, However they see fit. And that's been really valuable because as I mentioned the, you know, the interest in transparency for all these different um, people is, is only growing. And so companies really need to take this into their own hands and be responsible for, for at least communicating the the sustainability of the products that they're selling. And then the other type of data is the data that we gather from the browser extension. And so we're getting valuable information on what consumers are willing to switch their purchasing on and what really drives them to buy more sustainably. So we'll be able to get to a point where we say, you know, men in New York City between the ages of 25, and 30 are twice as likely to buy sustainable shampoo than sustainable toilet paper, right? And um, we can really get down to that level, which gives companies sort of two different tools. The first is if they're already a sustainable company, that helps them market better because they know, okay, it's human health that's driving these decisions, not water or climate. And so it helps them market their existing sustainability products a lot better. and secondly, what our what our real hope is for is that these companies will be able to get a business case on why investing in sustainability makes sense. So we can go to a bad company and say, you lost twenty percent of the market because people searched for your product and ended up going with a better one. And here here are the five things you can do to make your score you know a nine instead of a six. So you know, up until now, these companies are using antiquated um, practices to in terms of, you know, focus groups where people say one thing and do something else at checkout, and they're not really getting accurate information. And with the browser extension, we're we're actually getting that on a granular level, we never sell personal data. So we would never sell your specific information to a brand. But um, as a demographic as a larger, you know, uh, age geographic location, etc. cetera, um, we can really get some valuable information.
0: So can you tell us a bit more to, to close this, this uh, first part of the interview? Uh, the competition today, uh, I mean, you mentioned that uh, other companies have been trying to do that since a, a long time. So how are you guys like, you know, different or maybe better? Uh, I mean, how do you compare yourself to, you know, what's available in the, in the market, maybe in terms of, you know, efficiency or like cost or, uh, tell us a bit more about that.
1: I think there are two main differentiators that we like to focus on. The first is we do not, and don't foresee ever using carbon offsets to drive this change. And what we're seeing in the market is a lot of companies are saying, you know, shop as you normally would, but you have the opportunity to pay an extra two to five dollars to completely offset your purchase um that's problematic to us in in two different ways the first is it's not accessible um it's not helping drive the democratization of this information where only the top people who can afford an extra two dollars on their toilet paper um can have access to that and so for us we would just like to open our our network a bit more than that. Um, and carbon offsets, we don't think are the way to do that. The other problem with carbon offsets is that they are still fairly nascent in terms of the consumer facing ones, right? So I always use carbon offsets for my flying or my travel, which is a, an old established industry. And I feel confident in that. In the consumer space, I'm just not yet convinced that um, that that is going to move the needle. I think there are way too many external factors like a tree burning down or getting cut down in 20 years due to different regulations, et cetera, um, where in reality, you might be doing double damage in the next you know, 20 years. No. So I just we like to shy away from carbon offsets. That's the main thing. And then the second is something that I've mentioned a couple of times, which is this marketing towards um a much larger percentage of the population a lot of our competitors are looking down at us because we're using amazon and um because we're still suggesting you know liquid detergent in certain scenarios or you know we're saying things like don't buy a metal straw if you're only going to use it once it's better to just take a plastic straw that one time we're sort of pushing the envelope a little bit which i love but our competitors are i think sticking a little bit more in that safe space of um this is what the sort of hyper-green people are are wanting, and, and this is the information that they need.
0: So what's uh, what's next for, for Finch? What keeps you uh, up at night?
1: We're at an exciting inflection point right now where we are testing out sort of these two different paths that hopefully will merge. One is this, you know, consumer-facing browser extension that we're putting a lot of energy and resources into, And the second is this B2B offering of data. And to be quite honest, I don't know where the company is going to go. I don't know if, you know, we might become so successful with the browser extension that we find another way to monetize and we don't need to sell this data, or we find that companies are willing to to buy this data from us and the browser extension is is not the best way to, to do that. And so I'm excited to see, you know, right now we're going down both of these paths simultaneously and I'm excited to see where the market takes us. Um, I think the other thing that's happening is our content strategy is shifting a little bit where we're starting to place more energy on these like resource centers where you can actually go on and see, okay, I'm about to be a dad for the first time or I'm moving houses. How do I do that in the most sustainable way? Um, And you can go and get these quick tips as opposed to what we've been doing thus far, which has been more individual editorial blogs um and then really we're just trying to gain traction over the next eight to ten months um before we raise uh our next round of funding
0: fantastic um more on a personal side uh, i'd like to ask this this, uh, this question regarding the you know your opinion on the on the climate crisis i mean what would you be your, your worst to people who are afraid of all the terrible you know news and already visible consequences uh that we have about uh, climate change. I mean, as I ask, are we doomed? Uh what do you want to tell them?
1: I don't think we're doomed. I definitely don't think we're doomed. I have a cautious optimism that we will get ourselves out of this, but it's going to take work and it's going to take everybody's involvement. Um and so what I feel strongly about is of course there needs to be huge shifts in our energy grid and decarbonization. And I I love following the exciting technologies out there that are making that happen, but it's also happening on a smaller level. It's not that, you know, changing your brand of paper towels is not going to make a difference because if there are 100,000 of you, that does make a difference. Um, And so particularly for the Americans, you know, I think of like, I think of the small island nations who are, being affected more by climate change than any other part of the world, arguably, and they are having less than 1% of an impact um, on this actual problem, right? Where even they are doing more to mitigate climate change, even though it's it's really not their issue. The U, The Europeans, of course, have, have a footprint, but I think the government and the regulations are just much stronger than than in the United States and in America. And so I think that it really is the, developed countries' responsibility to um, to make these changes and to, you know, to vote, to be a part of these regulations that are happening on the governmental level, to support nonprofits who are doing this work, and also to take it into your own, you know, to be introspective about the way that you live. And if everybody lived this way, would it be sustainable?
0: So how can the community of, uh, you know, investors, founders, experts listening to the show today can uh, help you?
1: Honestly, right now the thing that we want most is for people to give us feedback on the extension on our website on the user experience, so that we can continuously improve that um, and be in touch. You know, in September when we start start raising our next round of funding. But honestly, you know, we're still small enough, and this is one of my favorite parts of the job, where I get an email and from a, from a user, and I answer it individually, and we we have a conversation and. I love getting those emails, whether good or bad, on how we can do better or what they like about it. Um, and that, you know, we, we can't be successful at Finch if we don't have the feedback of, of our users constantly. And so I, I would just encourage everybody to, to find out about us and to, and to share what they think.
0: So any question that I did not ask you that uh, I should have for this first part of the interview?
1: I don't think so. We covered a lot.
0: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much Lizzy for, for your time and uh, incredible insights on the on the industry. I'm so excited to see so many, you know, brilliant people and, and women like you putting so much effort to, uh, towards, uh, you know, solving the, the climate crisis. So thank you so much for, for coming with us today.
1: Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon.
0: Hi, it's Guillaume again. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. As I said, do not hesitate to share an episode with a friend. Also, if you value the work we do for the climatic ecosystem, here is how you can contribute to it. Today, I'm asking for your support and a donation, a sponsorship, to make the work of our self-funded team more viable. Even a small contribution means a lot to us. In any case, I will invite you to subscribe to our channels and visit our website startupdiscamp.org to discover more episodes like this one. And get your membership to access all our members' exclusive content. So remember, all of this is possible because of your support and donation. And we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. Let's keep in touch and I hope you will enjoy our next show with us.